Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of RISE Radio. I'm Eileen McDonald, the Editorial Director at RISE. Today, we're going to discuss interoperability and how it supports improved risk adjustment and quality programs. And to help us sort through it, my guest today is Katie Devlin, the Vice President of Interoperability for Cotivity. For those who aren't familiar with Cotivity, the organization enables healthcare organizations to deliver better care at lower costs through advanced technology and data analytics, helping to ensure the quality and sustainability of how healthcare is delivered in the United States. Welcome, Katie. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Eileen. Katie, let's start maybe at the very beginning on what is interoperability and why it's so important. Sure. Yeah. So interoperability, most, um, you know, when you look up articles or, you know, you read a book, interoperability is usually defined as exchanging data, right? Exchanging clinical data, um, often for the purposes of continuity of care. But it really goes a little bit beyond that, right? It's exchanging clinical information, but it it's really to the right person in the right format, right? The right information in the right format and in the right workflow, and at the right time, right? So it's it's not just, if you serve up data to a provider, for example, it doesn't mean anything, right? Unless it's put into context. So that's really interoperability, being able to exchange clinical information um, for specific purposes and use cases. Um, so I mentioned continuity of care, that is sort of the, the largest one. We, you know, treatment, payment, and operations is sort of the umbrella that everything falls under, but that most of this falls under. Um, continuity of care is a big one. Individual access is something that came up recently, um, especially with the Cures Act. And, you know, we can go into detail about that later, but um, patients being able to get access to their own data, right? We saw patient portals come around um, a few years back, and there really wasn't a lot of adoption um, because, you know, it was hard for patients to actually use these portals, get in, get in and figure out what their passwords are. So Cures Act really tried to make that easier um, and simplify that process for patients. So individual access is another big one. And of course, there's payer and provider needs, right? Being able to exchange data, close gaps in care, um, acquire data on behalf of payers to close, um, to do quality reporting, risk adjustment coding, all of that. Um, and there's also alternative use cases that don't fall under this treatment payment operations umbrella. Um, these include disability benefits determination, public health reporting, um, even life insurance companies are requesting it. So there's really a lot that goes into interoperability and the exchange purposes or permitted um, uses for the data. So given its value to healthcare, why do you think it's taken so long to establish and get it up and running? Yeah, so I think, you know, if we go back, actually, when I when I started, my first job was working in a medical records um, department of a large integrated health system teaching hospital. Um, and we were all on paper. This was prior to EMRs. And, you know, different health systems were trying to come into this century and they were trying to introduce um, some type of electronic record. And it may have only been clinical notes. It may have only been sort of nursing documentation. Maybe it was on microfiche, actually. Um, and each EMR, as these EMRs came up, so Cerner, Epic, all scripts, as these EMRs came up, they each had their own proprietary formats. So we, you know, 
and the providers really struggled with adopting it too, because many of the providers at the time were used to documenting on paper. They had their workflows ingrained. Um, so you saw meaningful use one come around and that basically said, okay, healthcare organizations, if you want to be incented from CMS um, and you want to be financially reimbursed, you need to be able to show me and demonstrate that you can meaningfully use this EHR, right? And that meant that a percentage of providers needed to be able to enter orders electronically. They called it computerized physician order entry. Um, nurses had to enter um, X amount of orders. Um, certain you know, elements within the EHR needed to be structured information. So that was that was all well and good. Um, but there there was a need for more adoption. We saw providers um sort of going down the hall and calling the nurses to put in a phone order for them. Um, we saw things like um dictated reports being done more and more because the EHRs weren't necessarily configured um for provider usability. The workflow was really still very clunky. So now we have meaningful use too, and that came around and it said, okay, we're going to up the ante here. You need to have more providers using this, more nurses using this. And now you have to demonstrate that you can share this information outside of your EHR with an external organization. And if you think about it, that makes perfect sense because most of us patients, if we're going to a large you know, health system or integrated um, network, we see providers right outside of that network. Maybe you're referred to a specialist. Um, maybe you go to an urgent care center. There are many reasons that that data needs to be exchanged. Um, referrals, for example. So for meaningful use too, these health systems and providers who wanted to, to get the uh, CMS money needed to be able to demonstrate that they could um, share the information. But it was really hard because the EMRs that were in place or the EMRs in place at the time, they didn't have any sort of standard format to share the data. So everything was sort of proprietary. And when EMRs were first established, they would still have to speak internally across the health system to you know, the revenue cycle systems and the patient scheduling and registration systems. And what they used was called HL7 messages. And that was really meant for internal health system um, communication. But with the meaningful use to requirements, we said, okay, well, maybe we can use HL7 to do this. So that was sort of, you know, very clunky, try, you know, trying to exchange data from an Epic to a Cerner system at that time. So now it's really evolved. Um, meaningful use three turned into um, promoting interoperability standards. And we saw, you know, the Cures Act come, come shortly thereafter and now mandating uh, what's called fast healthcare interoperability resources, which is really, um, really a sort of open sourced way of exchanging data. It's using APIs, of course, secure APIs meant for um, for patient information. So that's sort of you know how it's evolved, and um, you know we've gone from in the past twenty years. I, th I think we are today where we thought we would be ten years ago, to be honest, um, and we still have a lot of work to do with it. I know you've mentioned the CARE Act. We've talked about meaningful use. Are there any other federal requirements that are help sort of pushing us forward so that we can maybe fast track and sort of get to where the point we thought we would be at it right now? Yeah. So out of the CARES Act, the CARES Act basically established this floor for universal data exchange and um, with using the FHIR standard. But how do we do this? How do we actually get this done? And we have national networks today that are in place that have been exchanging data, right? They kind of 
figured out how to use, how to leverage HL7, how to use IHE, what's called IHE-based profiles to share information in the continuity of care document format. Um, so that is that is all well and good. We have these networks. They have a lot of health system participation. They have a lot of health information exchanges participate, mostly for treatment purposes, but you know others are, are sharing data for payment and operations as well. Um, so out of the Cures Act, the the way that we are going to do this is called the Trust Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, and you know also known as TEFCA. And um, TEFCA basically builds on what we already have accomplished as a nation in terms of data exchange, but it takes it a little bit further and it supports um, the patient access, individual access. It supports payer to payer um, data exchange, payer to provider, prior authorization. Um, it supports these other use cases like government benefits determination, uh, public health reporting, et cetera. So the TEFCA is very, very detailed. Um, it operates in sort of this brokered approach because these health systems and HIEs that participate in national networks today can apply to become a qualified health information network or a QHIN under TEFCA. And what that means is they go through a really rigorous vetting process um, where they have to apply to be a QHIN, their QHIN application is approved, and now they have to test and they have to meet the technical requirements of TEFCA um, that called the uh, QHIN framework, right? So the, the QTF, QHIN technical framework. Um, so as they do that, and once that comes up, treatment will be the first use case. And these QHINs can basically exchange data from you know each other. So if I'm Katie Devlin and I live in Massachusetts, I can use my regional QHIN to exchange data if I need my data shared with maybe the West Coast QHIN. So it's a really good way of approaching nationwide information exchange, but it is going to be, you know, a very specific um, process that needs to be followed uh, to get there. So, you know, the initial focus with TEFCO right now is, of course, on treatment. Um, you know, patient care is is sort of the most the most critical, right? Treatment and, and patient access, um, and we're sort of in this place right now where the TEFCOs are you know, doing this sort of onboarding process. Um, but the framework does say that these other use cases, including payer to payer and payer to provider um, exchanges will be supported. It's just a matter of when that mandate will happen. So, um, you know, just something for, for other healthcare stakeholders to think about. What would you describe as sort of the primary challenges for organizations, you know, well, you might, whether it be Medicare Advantage plans, whether it be provider organizations, hospital systems, what is, what are you hearing from your clients? Yeah, I mean, and I, I think it's not just our clients. I think we're seeing it ourselves at Cotivity, right? It's the policy influences data availability right now. It's sort of this, the slow drip. Um, so, and, and consistency in the data, right? The data content, are we getting the data in CCDA format? <clears throat> Are we getting it in FHIR, which is a, a JSON format? Um, not so much, really. The, the reality is not a lot of hospitals are using that yet, though that is where um, the industry wants to go. Um, so it's it's the content, it's the availability, and beca because of TEFCO, right? That not all of these health systems in HIEs are mandated yet to share the data for use cases beyond treatment, um, even though they may support and encourage 
sharing of the data for payment operations. They're not required to do so yet, um, but they will in the future. So that's one barrier, right? The availability of data. Another thing um, is the exclusivity, right? That we're seeing with some of these vendors, um, health systems, right? It really goes against the spirit of, of interoperability, right? When you see, um, when you unfortunately want to want to get data from a health system and say, oh, I only work with this vendor, you know, that that really doesn't sort of, um, you know, just really, in my opinion, goes against the spirit of, of what we're trying to do as an industry. Can you describe how interoperability supports improved risk adjustment and quality programs? I know that's become sort of a talking point from the people I speak sure. with. Yeah, so you know, getting structured data because as we're acquiring this information, it's becoming more and more structured. We have the new um, U.S. core data set, so it's called U.S. CDI, um, and that's the content, right? So we have protocol, we have protocols to get the data via Fire, IHE, um, and other other mechanisms. Whether it's a not so fun SFTP, that is the reality. But the content of the data is coming in in structured format. It needs to meet the U.S. CDI core requirements which basically says you need to have these elements within the data that you're sharing. It doesn't matter if you get it via FIRE or CCDA, but you need to have these elements. So the data is getting better and structured data means better insights, right? The ability to use this information to more effectively close gaps in care, um, et cetera. So um, event, you know, the hope too is that this information can be used for the HEDIS digital measures as well, right? And we see that NCQA has um, stood up a really rigorous process for vetting the content of the information um, called a DAV certification program or a DAV validation program. And we're seeing a lot of these HIEs go through that. In fact, I was just at, Cotivity is actually part of, um, the it used to be called the Strategic Health Information Collaborative. It's now called Civitas. And I was just at that conference this week. And I was really, really impressed with how many HIEs and partners um, have gone through that process to validate their data. Now, <clears throat> when you talk about somebody being DAV validated, it doesn't mean if they have a thousand participants in their network that all of those participants have gone through that program. It's data stream by data stream. So it is it is a really onerous process, but it's um, I've heard it's been very good for improving the data quality. So, um, you know, certainly is going to help with a lot of these payer use cases like risk adjustment and quality. What would you say to plans now as they're getting ready for the next HEDIS mm -hmm. season? Yeah, so I think, you know, just building on what I just said, <clears throat> excuse me, um, if you plan to use digital data, you know, you really need to make sure that your organization has an understanding of NCQA's requirements, right? The DAV validation program, who has gone through that? And are they a data stream that's validated? Or is it maybe a vendor partner that had gone through this validation process with a data source? Because that is different just because, you know, an organization has gone through, there is a, a, I guess, a difference, right? If you're a vendor and you are supporting maybe analytics or doing something with the data to help clean it, et cetera, that does not mean you have data to give. It, these organizations have gone through this certification with a data partner. So it's it's important to understand that, that uh, difference there. Um, and then if the data is going to be used as supplemental, you know, then understanding whether or not it's subject to audit um, and primary source verification. I'm thinking some of um, the listeners today might be in the early stages of all of this. Um, can you offer any suggestions if you're just yeah. in the beginning, what to be thinking about? 
Yeah. So I think, you know, it's really important to take a step back and assess your infrastructure, right? You need to make sure that before you start getting over your skis here and making all these connections to data partners or trying to work with them, you need to look at what you have internally and assess your infrastructure, figure out how scalable it is, right? Can you accommodate various ways and um, interoperability protocols, right? Ways of connecting to these um, data partners, whether these data partners are health systems, health information exchanges, data aggregators, national networks, they, you know, you do really need to have an infrastructure that can accommodate different formats. Um, so for example, we have a fire-based application that health systems can use to, to share their data. We also use IHE-based profiles. So it's a, what's called an XCA, XCPD um, data exchange. And it's this sort of multi-step dance that says, okay, do you have Katie Devlin? And they say, yes, we do have Katie Devlin. You do have Katie Devlin's records now for this time period. Yes, we do. And then they'll send the CCD over. So that's sort of the second way. And then as I alluded to earlier, some of these health systems want to put the structured data on an SFTP folder um, and just use it as like a patient panel kind of approach. And we have that um, option as well. So we have a um, provider portal that uh, health systems can use to share that data. So having an infrastructure that's really scalable and can meet your data partners where they are is great. And the idea is as fire becomes more adopted and Tefka you know, becomes reality for payers that the other sort of protocols will diminish, right? And we'll see more adoption on fire, but I don't think they'll ever go away. So it's, it's um, definitely worth building. Um, I think you need to also have a really good understanding of your market and where you want to build your network, right? Relative to potential data partners. Um, so I've talked to many clients and, and I've experienced this myself before where I get really excited about working with a data partner and they say, yes, we have all this access to data. It's wonderful. We have 4 million lives. That's great. And when you actually dig in and you actually look at the network, they have 4 million lives for treatment purposes. It doesn't mean that payers or business associates of payers like, like Otivity can actually use that data or have access to it, at least not yet. Um, so really doing your due diligence, making sure that you understand what data is available to you when you contract with somebody um, and for what use cases, right? Um, especially if the source provider health system is not part of a national network. Is there any other, something I didn't ask you that you think is important for anyone who's listening today, what they should take away from all of this? Yeah, I think just understanding that interoperability is, is really just more complex than I think a lot of folks think, you know, even, you know, understanding TEFCA and how that's going to work. It, it, it is not saying, again, just coming from this conference, it was refreshing to hear the industry experts say, you know, we are not seeing broad adoption of fire yet, right? These other protocols were invented for a specific reason to solve a problem. So continuity of care documents, CCDs are XML documents, structured information that comes across. That was meant to share data during meaningful use one, um, transitions of care documents, that kind of thing. HL7, as I messaged, or as I mentioned, was used for messaging um, internally, but can be used for other things. And it's really valuable on the provider side for admission, discharge, transfer notification. So those protocols aren't gonna go away, but we will see fire you know, adoption grow over time. But it's not, there's no sort of single bullet to solve this problem. Um, 
even these, you know, organizations, uh, you know, HIEs and, and health systems are struggling with, you know, understanding TEFCA for treatment purposes, right? If I'm a national network, I can have some of my participants opt in to share for TEFCA and others opt out of it. It's not required, but it's obviously, it's it's beneficial for um, organizations to do so. So they have to build different data streams. It gets very, very complex very quickly. Um, so, you know, I think it's easy to get frustrated if you're not getting this sort of widespread access to data yet. But the reality is, um, is that it it is this sort of very slow, slow drip, you know, to say again, um, and you just have to be very specific about where you're, where you're looking for data and um, very, you know, cautious of making sure that you're not getting into agreements with data partners that require minimums, you know, because you might not be able to meet those based on the, you know, data that's available on the other side. And given this complex topic, Katie, if people have any questions, how can they reach out to you? Yeah, so I think the best way to do that is um, you can go to answers at cotivity.com and send me a message that way. Um, that way we can sort of track that information that's coming in and make sure that we're you know responding in a um, timely format. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you.